Have you ever thought about that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? I did. I actually bought two homes in Albuquerque that I Airbnb'd, and it was just an amazing investment, honestly, because, you know, as you are accruing value in your property, you are also making money on the Airbnbs. It's amazing. So your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila is a must-have. It's an award-winning tequila. It's infused with real juice, with real fruit, which means the flavors are built in. It's real. So you need like two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Hey, um, you know how I'm always trying to keep my house parties exciting? New cocktails? <laughs> do you? Yeah. Okay, well, here's something that's going to flip the script. Okay. All right. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about this, right. Oliver Hudson. Yeah, 21 Seeds is an award-winning tequila that's infused with juice from real fruits. You only need two to three ingredients to make the perfect cocktail. Wait a minute. I think I know what brand you're talking about. You know why? Yeah. Because 21 Seeds is founded by two sisters and their friend. It's female founded. That's right. See? Sounds See like how I know? Something I can get behind. I know. Well, there's a good story behind that for sure. Listen, if you love tequila... You have to try 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds Diageo, New York, New York. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No, no. Sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. <laughs> sibling rivalry. That's good. Today we have on psychotherapist Mark Epstein, Dr. Mark Epstein, who is known for lucidly mapping the ways in which Buddhism can enrich Western approaches to psychology. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely... Oh, yeah. This was... Just... It's funny timing. Timing is a funny thing. This this interview couldn't have come in a better time for me. I feel good. I felt great. Yeah. I felt I felt kind of shitty going into it, and now I'm ready. What is your, what is your dude doing? <laughs> Danny Fujikawa is on a chair. Oh, he's jumping up. He's trying to see. We had this crazy thing happen yeah. while, we were, while we were on this call is a bird flew into the window. It was very sad. And the bird flew into the window and then was paralyzed. <laughs> what are you doing, honey? And now Danny's trying to look. I, I believe I've seen this bird <laughs> up on one of uh, outside the house. It built a nest. Yeah. I'm afraid that it's the mom. The irony is, is we were literally talking about trauma. And we also were talking about Buddha who lost his mother at one week. And right. And then all of a sudden we hear a thunk. <laughs> and this bird <laughs> flies into the window and I had to like go out and it's all paralyzed. It's very sad. This is very, very sad. I'm trying to help the bird. The yeah. bird is, is, is stunned. And, and then we're trying to see if there's a nest with, with, with eggs or babies. Um, 
But that's what happened during this interview, which, which at the very end of the interview. <laughs> but during, I mean, the irony of that is it was we were talking so much about um, how he integrates Buddhism into his therapy sessions. This guy is so cool. He basically studied with all of the people that anybody's quoting on Instagram. Yeah, they were his like mentors and teachers who he actually hung out yeah, with. Yeah, traveled with. Yeah. And, you know, Ram Das, I'm not going to ruin it, but yeah, there's a said bunch something to him that I thought was incredibly profound and awesome. Um, the only bad thing that came out of this is I, I kind of want to have him be my therapist now, but I, I don't know. <laughs> don't I, don't, I don't know what to tell Ellie. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, are you taking new clients? Um, he really is wonderful. I I loved talking with him. It was inspiring, and I think everybody's going to really love listening because living is hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody has and carries trauma. You know, he said. If it's if you're if you're not in post traumatic, you're you're in, in pre traumatic. I like that. And I thought that was uh, a really sort of I don't know, took the pressure off of mm-hmm. anybody who feels like they're carrying something and maybe is apologetic about it or feels like they shouldn't feel like they have trauma or they shouldn't feel like they have issues because other people's problems are worse and yada yada. But at the end of the day, we're all just living this light each experience is just completely different and his approach to it just being so present in every person's experience or every client's experience um Mm -hmm. as their doctor sort of is a great way to look at like well he also gives you hope that there's you you can help yourself there's a way to help yourself you don't have to just wallow and stay in it yeah you know and he, all of his books are a great guide yeah he is he's got quite a few he's working on a new one right now and uh you know, read his books and change your life. There's my, uh, <laughs> there's my promotion. Read his books. Or you could say, change your life, read his books. Yeah, okay. It could go either way. Yeah. It's, trying to that, figure out what, which that, ones can That's a diff- different meaning, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I really, I really am so happy that he came and joined us. And I hope that everybody gets something from this and, um, and, and that everybody, you know, gets over themselves. Because yeah. that's basically what this is that's all about. That's right. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. I'm trying right now as you're listening to me. And here is Dr. Mark Epstein. Hi. Hi there. You're, you're, you know, it's, it's the irony of having you on today is amazing. Um, can I share with him what oh, yeah. just happened? So Oliver, my, my uh, Oliver just got off of his antidepressants and is having a hard time. Oh, we can talk about it. <laughs> I know. I took a walk this morning listening to your book. Uh-oh. Well, that that didn't help. No, I, I was <laughs> devastated. No, I, I, I was like, I'm just going to good morning. I'm going to listen to the doctor's book. You know, I totally vibe with his philosophies of this integration of Western yeah. Eastern, and it's going to be good. And then I just, it's hard to feel good doing anything. Feeling good. feeling. If you set feeling good up as like what you have to be feeling, then... You're just creating another thing that you're failing at, you know? Right. Um, Feeling whatever you're feeling. If you're going to do the meditation thing, feeling whatever you're feeling and making room for it, really accepting, really accepting, like including the bad feelings. 
uh, um, that's the that's it's a very it's very hard to do that. But um, but if you can if you can apply, uh, you know, um, it, sometimes it'll really help. I was you know reading all kinds of excerpts from your books, and and one of them was talking about you were talking about how meditation can be seen as an escape versus like being in life as escaping from life um, and how we can actually use meditation differently. Mm. You are actually dealing with what's happening versus trying to not deal. And I, yeah. I think that all the time I, sometimes I, I have friends who get in these like kicks and it's like, what are you, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Yeah, you're, avo- <laughs> you're, you're using avoiding. this as to avoid your life. Right. right. You're like the whole, that's, that's the opposite of what all of this is for. But uh, you know, it, enough about all of it. Enough about me. <laughs> and don't mind <laughs> if I just, don't mind if I just break down in tears every 30 minutes or so. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sign in therapy. Yes. I just want to like get right into sort of where this journey of taking Buddhism and, you know, psychotherapy, how that all began, like where it, where it started for you. Well, how it really started, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, I, it started in my, uh, my first year in college. So I was, you know, 18 years old or whatever. And I came from a secular, you know, Jewish secular uh, background where academia was the religion of my household, you know, but no, no, no spirituality, no religion. I wasn't interested in it. But um, my first year in college, I met a girl uh, right away the first week of school, and she was taking an introduction to world religion class. Um, and I was like, introduction to world religion? You know, that, I, that would have never occurred to me to take that class. <laughs> but uh, because she was taking it and it satisfied a requirement, um, I decided I would take it too. And the, uh, the whole first semester was Eastern religion and the second semester was Western religion. And the Eastern religion stuff, was, I was fascinated by the, the Tao Te Ching, you know, and then there's a collection of Buddhist verse called the Dhammapada, um, which was um, Buddhist uh, instruction for householders, you know, in simple language. And uh, that was my favorite book in the whole course. And they had a chapter about the mind, you know, uh, the uncontrolled mind is like a fish thrown on dry ground, flapping all the time. And I was like, oh, that's me. Um, (laughs) So uh, that sort of primed me. The the Western religion part of the course was of um, a lot less interest to me. Um, But then everywhere I went in the psychology department, there was... uh, 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 I walked into a graduate student teaching uh, room and the graduate student there had just come back from India and was wearing these purple bell-bottom pants and had this long frizzy hair. And I was like, he knows something. He has something that I want. That was my... <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I was love this that you guy, remember was, his bell-bottom. Yeah, that <laughs> was the purple bell-bottom, really. With corduroy, purple I'm corduroy. Like, I want them. Can we find I them? them? I want it them. Looked, <laughs> it looked right to me at the time. It was 1972. Um, and uh, he had he was a friend of Ramdas's. Little did I know he had already been in India with Ramdas and had just come back to go to graduate school in psychology. And uh, and I made friends with him and was like, you know, where how can I learn what you what you know? And he said, go out to this place in Colorado called Naropa Institute that was just starting. Uh, it was 1974 by then, 
And uh, I listened to him and went there and uh, Ram Dass, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg. Uh, it was like the New York art world mm-hmm. and the West Coast spiritual I mean, world. You were like right in the center oh of the God. Mecca of all. I, was, I, I thought it was Woodstock. You know? yeah, That's what I'm saying. I mean, this is the, this like... is the psychological Woodstock. <laughs> it was, it, it was too, I was too young spiritual for Woodstock, Woodstock. but uh, at least I made it to Naropa. Um, and I just, I just devoured it. I took, um, you, you know, I took meditation classes from Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. I made friends with all of them. And uh, I was like a little puppy dog sort of, you know, they were 10 years older than I was, but they, they took me on. Um, and I ended up traveling with them in India. I went back, went back and met all their Eastern teachers with them. We went to Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka and, you know, to the Dalai Lama. We traveled all around. And then I went to medical school. So I, I decided wow. uh, I had been brought up. My father was an academic physician who uh, wanted me to go to medical school. And I was like, I'm never going to medical school. You know? <laughs> um, but finally, uh, after all the immersion in Eastern uh, spirituality, I was... I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know, and I, and I had the idea that maybe I could blend the Eastern stuff. I I went to medical school with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist. And so nobody else in the class wanted to be a psychiatrist. So I I sort of had the field all to myself. Um, So then, so that started, then I was like always looking at what I learned about, uh, uh, psychiatry through a Buddhist lens because I was already so. Uh, Did you know that, that you were going to try to integrate the two once you I, started your I own had practice? that idea. Yeah, that was that was my my motivation. And and when I got to medical school, I, I went to Harvard Medical School. Uh, but and when I got there, I freaked out because I was surrounded by all these people who really were knew science better than I did. And the the curriculum was you you had to memorize like these these big big they called them camels they were big uh, books full of information and you had to like swallow digest memorize and spit back all this stuff and I thought this is too much for me and I tried to drop out and go to social work school but um, but everybody looked at me like I was crazy dropping out of Harvard Medical School to go to social <laughs> work school so I, I stayed with it but I I did it with the idea of um, of trying to blend that stuff, uh, which I started to do, you know, once I got out of, in my last year of medical school, actually, I started mm-hmm. to do that. I, now, I, how, just for people who don't know, the difference between psychiatry and psychology is what? Yeah. Uh, psychiatry means you went to medical school, right. which means you can prescribe drugs. Uh, and Ooh. it means as part, <laughs> of you, as part of your education, you had to learn uh, uh, everything that you learn in medical school. So all cancer and heart disease and emphysema, you learn about uh, the um, pathology of the human body uh, and, and the human mind. Uh, and when you finish all that, you have to do a medical internship and then you do uh, three years of specialty training in psychiatry. So it's equivalent if you were going to be an anesthesiologist or an obstetrician or a pediatrician, you have the same basic education and then you specialize after you graduate Mm. from medical school. Uh, Psychology, uh, there are various ways to be a psychologist or a psychotherapist. You can get a a five-year clinical psychology degree or a two or three-year social work degree or 
a, a PsyD, which is a PhD in education. There's, there are all these different routes to becoming a psychologist. But the main difference is that the psychiatrist ends up being able to prescribe and, and sort of speaks the medical language. A psychotherapist and a psychologist, is there a, is there a difference between? Uh, a psychologist would have a specific degree. They would have a, a certain kind of training. Uh, almost anybody can call themselves a psychotherapist. And there are, very, in every state, like in California, you can be a marriage and, uh, forget what they call it, a marriage and family counselor. I think mm-hmm. they have special degrees in California. You know, to become a psychiatrist, I could have learned everything that I needed to know uh, as a psychiatrist in about, you know, six months of medical school. Mm. But instead, right. it was four, four years worth of uh, of stuff. But I, it ends up being useful to know Pe- people come and they're, um, uh, you know, something's wrong with them physically. And, and I can understand what the issues are and what the treatments are and, you know, right. speak That's to great. their doctors if I need to. I thought I knew, I knew that that was the difference, but the, but I didn't realize it was exactly the same amount of school. So yeah. That's intense. That's I mean, why I decided to do the medical thing because if I was going to do a right. doctorate in clinical psychology, you know, it was the same number of years, and yeah. uh, um, and everyone told me I would have more authority in the world if I had the medical degree, given what I wanted to do, which was to you know talk about Buddhism. Um, and that, that turned out to be true. They, pe- I think people listened to me because they saw the Harvard Medical School thing and the MD and they thought, well, like, at least we should give them a chance to. You know. Right. Mm-hmm. When you were seeing all of this sort of medical jargon through a Buddhist eye in college. Yeah. Were you, did you bring that into the classroom? Like, did you ever challenge teachers mm. about these? Well, in, in college, the, I was I really studied more Buddhism than I did psychology because I found all these uh, um, sort of undercover Buddhists who were already uh, graduate students and young teachers, at, you know, at Harvard. Um, in medical school and in my really in my residency, because I had to do these three years of training as a psychiatrist, where being supervised by um, uh, all these seniors in those days, psychoanalysts, you know, sort of scary psychoanalytic types. Mm. And uh, I had a friend in Boston uh, who was a Sufi psychiatrist. Well, I think he was the only Sufi psychiatrist cool. in America <laughs> at the time who told me when I went to do my residency, I was studying under this uh, guy named Otto Kernberg, who was a very fierce, he had a very fierce reputation my Sufi psychiatrist friend said, if you tell Otto Kernberg what you're interested in, he will eat you alive. So uh, I very diligently kept my, all my Buddhist leanings very quiet while I did my training. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I had uh, uh, Otto Kernberg as a supervisor. And, um, and I liked him. He really helped me uh, uh, with my patients. And I started to divulge, uh, you know, oh, actually, I'm interested in this Buddhist stuff. Then it turned out all the psychiatrists uh, who were working at this hospital, they were all open to it and interested in it. And I had been keeping it in the closet, you know, uh, for no good reason. It was starting to, it was starting to um, uh, uh, come out of the counterculture into the mainstream in those years, in the 80s. Yeah. We know that a lot of the practices that exist in Buddhism are actually good for our brains and can help expand our awareness and our consciousness and all of this. How do you connect that to a patient? Well, okay, so here's the thing. 
so I was around in all those early years, I was around all the people who did the groundbreaking work about how meditation is good for your brain and good for your blood pressure. And, you know, trying to investigate research wise, what happens in the brain when you're meditating, you, you know, and I was, I was interested in that, but I wasn't so interested in that, that that's how I wanted to make my career. I really wanted to be a psychotherapist and work one-on-one -on -one with people. So I took the route personally of learning what I could really learn about being a good therapist, not worrying about teaching patients mindfulness or uh, getting them to lower their blood pressure by five points, you know, by doing the relaxation response. I really wanted to be, you know, like what makes a therapist a good therapist? So, um, so I did my best to become a good therapist. Um, uh, and, but, and in doing that, I kept the Buddhist thing quiet. You know, I kept it in. I figured if um, if it was really doing anything for me personally, it should come through in the way that I am in in life. You know, my family. We could talk to it another time, uh, but at, but at least in the office, one on one with people, it should come through in some way. And I and for twenty years, twenty five years or so. That's how I operated, and I didn't talk about it that much. If if someone was interested, if I knew they were interested, I would tell them where I go on retreat and who my, you know, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, the good teachers, they could go learn more, and then we could talk about what their experience was. Um, and that, the past 10 years or so, I've gotten a little freer about... Uh, okay, we could actually talk about spiritual stuff. The, the, the line between the emotional and the spiritual and the psychological all started to blur. Mm -hmm. So I think a good psychotherapy it is like a good meditation. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a two-person meditation where we're really using whatever is happening in the moment in the relationship, in the conversation, in the room. We're really using that to free ourselves as best as we can from the preconceptions, you know, that we've brought into the room, from the feelings that we might have that what we're, what, what, what we're remembering or what we're feeling is wrong or bad or shameful, you know, to allow all that stuff to come up and then to expose it, to hold it in the field of awareness like we learn to do in meditation. Uh, so lately I've been thinking, oh, maybe there's some kind of, you could almost call it a transmission, although that's getting, you know, pushing it a little bit, but maybe there's some kind of experience that people can have in psychotherapy that's analogous to what they experience in meditation. Well, do you think there's a natural synergy just, just uh, overall, I mean, forget about sort of the evolution because it seems like there's been an evolution to blur the lines, right? Twenty years ago, maybe it wasn't like that, but do you think there's a natural synergy between that Buddhist spirituality and psychotherapy? I, I think there can be, depending on the on the mind of the psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. um, like, like I, I had a uh, a conversation that always stayed with me with with Ramdas. Who uh, you, you know who he who he was? He just died last year. He, mm -hmm. he was Richard Alpert. He was with Timothy Leary, LSD, and so mm -hmm. on. Then he went to India, became Ramdas. He was an early teacher of mine, and then I stayed in contact with him over the years. So, 
20 years into my uh, training as a psychiatrist, I went to visit him in California. He'd had a stroke and I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And he was sort of making fun of me and, and oh, are you a Buddhist psychiatrist now? You know, uh, and I sort of sheepishly said, I guess so. And he said, well, do you see your patients as already free? And he'd had a stroke, so he had to, he said it very slowly, do you see them, you know, as already free? And that thought went really deep into me, you know, because that's where the synergy might be. Because mm -hmm. I think I do, you know, mm -hmm. like, especially if there's synergy with the person, you know, like when you, when you, when you make a new friend and already you feel a kind of resonance, it's like that with the patients. Um, so being able to see them, even if they're upset or going through something bad or, you know, to see their, you could call it their Buddha nature or their, or just their soul or their specialness, you know, or their love, um, to see that from the start and to know that everything we're talking about is, is we're trying to part the, uh, you know, part the curtains in order to let that emerge. I think I'm operating like that. Well, that's a really, it's a really amazing thing to say. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. so, so incredible. But, you know, I think a lot of times people do enter therapy because they feel stuck. They feel stifled. They feel lack of that kind of freedom. Like I always say, people say, what is happiness? Or, you know, I get asked these crazy questions as if I have the answer, you know, it's like, you're supposed kind of, to come on. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for me, like real happiness is liberation is freedom from, from, from oneself, right? From oneself. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, a thousand percent, you know, and you feel that kind of like liberation of whether it be fear or how people, how you feel that you are being seen or that you see yeah. yourself or other, you know, um, in that is how, is, is this sort of like this pure feeling of freedom. It's when you're listening to the driving song, like you're in your car and there's a song on and you feel this sort of like, there's no weight on your shoulder and like your hairs <laughs> going in the, the wind and you're like, right now, everything feels perfect. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, yeah. and that to me is freedom. And then the question is, is then you have to meet all these challenging obstacles and egos and connections and that can just really fuck up that, that freedom. <laughs> yeah. And so how you handle that becomes, I think, such a huge part of your own well-being. I guess the question is, how can you live in a sob convertible Going down the PCH yes. on a 75-degree summer day all the yeah. time. Listening to Little right. Pink Houses. Right. Or, Boys, or Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Yeah, or, you know? or Africa or by Toto. By Toto. <laughs> How do we achieve that? That's been, that's been my... Uh, every book I've written has been trying to get at, at uh, exactly that question. Yeah. The very first meditation retreat that I ever went on, you know, I've over the years I've tried to do w one of these two week silent retreats every year. Although when we had children, I went for 11 years without ever going. Um, but the very first one that I ever went on, where all you do is you sit quietly hour by hour trying to pay attention to the sensation of the breath going in the nostrils and the breath coming out the nostrils and the lips touching and so on, you know, practicing mindfulness. The first retreat I ever did, after about five days of doing that, 
suddenly I was absolutely, you know, filled with love, just like in a way, like, and I was not, I had now, at that point, I had never really been in love. You, you know, it wasn't like a familiar feeling. Yeah. Uh, but first, my body started to like quiver. And, and uh, I felt very light, you know, more lightness than happiness. But and then I was just filled with like waves of love. It's never happened again. And, and I've gone on a lot of retreats, like, mm-hmm. where is it? Where is it? Where is it? You know? <laughs> um, but but um, it made a deep impression. I think it was the equivalent of, of the Saab uh, riding down <laughs> the highway. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and it goes to that, do you see your patience is already free? Because having the sense that, oh, that there's something, something about myself I didn't know. Like, I'm really capable of this kind of freedom you know um were you trying to have you been trying to find that i mean i know no, i didn't know it was there no, no, I no was i'm saying i'm saying after you felt that and you're saying yeah. I, can't, I i never really got back to that place you know um uh, i i've never gotten back to it in the intensity with which it took me the first time mm. that new uh, discovery but it, but it became, but it, but I could see. Oh, this is, this is uh, an essential aspect of my being, and so I can feel it. Uh, I remember when my uh, my daughter, who's now thirty four, when uh, when she was born, uh, a couple of months later, we went to visit a couple of friends in the country, and we didn't have a crib for her, so we we made a bed in a drawer. And she slept in a drawer. And uh, it was like two months after she was born, three months, something like that. And we got a little stoned, which I hadn't been doing. And uh, suddenly I was with my daughter and I saw her looking at me with love. Like until then, I had only been seeing her like, this is just the baby. You know, we have mm-hmm. to take care of the baby. Like how do you change the diaper and everything? Mm-hmm. And, but to experience that, oh, that love is there, you know, was there in her from the beginning, you know. Yeah. And my ego was closing myself off to it, you know, trying to be the capable, responsible, you know, sort of obnoxious father uh, person, husband and father. Um, But there it was again, you you know. So Mm. I think it's there. It's knowing that it's there and then letting it, being surprised by it in in different ways It's interesting you say that. I can relate in the way, I'm not going to get into this because I've talked about a thousand times on this podcast, but I went to this place called the Hoffman Institute. I'm not sure you've heard of it I know about that. (laughs) We're going to cut the, we're going to go beep, 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 because I've talked about it too much, right? But- I, I really, it was an incredible... This ex- will be a clip. <laughs> it was an incredible experience for me, but you leave there... That's a bell. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> <laughs> we need the Hoffman bell. <clears throat> but I, I, I left there floating on, in a oh, place God. that I didn't even know existed, and I was almost seeing things you know, in a psychic sense, in a way, and coincidences were no longer coincidences. It it just was like part of my entire world. That honeymoon phase sort of, you know, drifts off and you wonder if you can ever reach that again. And it's almost depressing that shit, I was so, it was, I was so capable of living in this space for like at least two or three months after. And then it faded, it sort of faded away, but I feel like it stuck. Yeah. I just don't live the in that thing, spot. The Buddhist thing is all about integrating it. 
how do you how do you integrate that? That's why they frame it all as the eightfold path. You know, mm. it's not just about meditation. It's also about livelihood. It's also about the way you speak to yourself and to others. It's you know, it's how you look at the world. It's how you think about the world. That you you know that really helped me because I had those early. You know, I was floating also, and and where you know, oh, this is the point. You know, like maybe maybe uh, uh, I'm enlightened. You you know, go running to the teacher. Um, but, but it's really about integrating into every, you know, into your family life, into your personal life, into your work life, um, how, to, yeah. how to keep that, uh, how to make it relevant, you know, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of very accomplished Hoffman Institute uh, therapists or Buddhist meditators, you know, they get, they get very high in their environment, but then they're, you know, lousy to be around. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Where do birds die? Well, it's a good, it's an interesting, uh, interesting you ask that question because you can go on Great Courses Plus and probably find out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, our our That's new so sponsor, and um, I, I actually had a call with them, and I loved everything that they had to say. I signed up for the app. It's basically you can learn about anything that you want to learn. You can go deep into mathematics, or you can learn about beekeeping and making IPAs. Oh, and cool! It's really cool. It's all professionals professors if that's what it is or people who have been in these businesses and teaching these businesses for a long long time that's cool they're in 30 minute bits basically and it's like a course so you can keep oh, this is right up my alley oh it's so I great i love this stuff especially because we didn't go to college exactly. oh well i mean i didn't you I basically went to two years, didn't but, you know. <laughs> but i but but yeah, I mean, I, I'm always constantly wanting to learn about something Right. New. It's binge learning. So we've been in I this- love Yeah, this. binge learning. We've been in the world of binge watching, but this is binge learning. So you are constantly educating yourself. Well, you've got economics and finance, food and wine, yeah, health, fitness and nutrition, history, yeah. hobby and leisure, literature and language, mathematics, music and fine arts, philosophy and religion. Oh, I love this. I'm telling Programs you, you're for young learners. Yep. I'm so into Those it. are the categories. And then, of course, you've got all the subcategories underneath. But it's 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 video. You have access to video and audio. So you can also switch it from just audio if you wanted to listen in your car or watch the video. Um, there's guidebooks. There's new content that's added every single month. It's really, really cool. Oh, this is so great. I can't wait to do this. Um, all right. So don't miss out on this great deal. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash sibling to get your free trial. And our listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership. Again, yes. that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash sibling. And our listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership. Course Light. Oh, Course Light. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, Oliver, and that is Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles, they turn blue when your beer is cold. That's when you know it's time to chill. You got to hit the reset button, open up a Coors Light, and boom. It's mountain cold refreshment. I need a little bit of mountain cold refreshment right now. Summer's around the corner, and it's 
a Coors Light summer. We go to Colorado during the summer, and we stay there for the for the for three four months. At least I do. And uh, if there is not Coors Light that is constantly chilling in my cooler, something is wrong. I'm dreaming of a Coors Light on a mountain right now. Coors Light is the one that we choose when we need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You know, I made a whole thing out of the fact that the Buddha had no relationship with his mother because his mother died when he was a week old. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, you know, as a, as a, psycho, a psychotherapist, why, why is that story in the Buddha, in the, you know, in the myth, if it's, you know, of the Buddha? Why does his mother die when he's a week old? Um, and I was determined to make something out of that. Like I was going to like Eric Erickson with uh, Luther or Gandhi, you know, I wanted <laughs> to do like a, a psychobiography. Um, and I, um, I'll try not to talk too long about this, but I, I, I went on one of these retreats. Uh, they have a little library at, at these retreat centers that are filled with just Buddhist books. And you're not supposed to read or write or anything, but I always sneak into the library for half an hour. Uh, and pull a book off the shelf at random to see what, you know, maybe the, the universe will give me a teaching. So right when I was thinking about this, I went into the library five days into my retreat and the, um, the Buddhist sutras are like the Encyclopedia Britannica. They take up a whole shelf, you know. So I picked one volume out at random and opened it up at random and I opened to the only place in the whole Encyclopedia Britannica where they talk about the death of the Buddha's mother, um, and oh, wow, it, and wow. it said and it says, oh, um, she um, she knew that when he was twenty nine, he was going to abandon the family, and it was going to cause her so much pain. So to save her that pain, she decided to die uh, when uh, he was a week old. Um, yeah. And so I thought, well, that's kind of a rationalization. Um, yeah. But um, my theory was that the, the that sense that a lot of us have developmentally of not being loved enough by our one parent or both parents, or if if one of them dies or leaves or is alcoholic or depressed or whatever, we, many people uh, uh, are left with some kind of residual sense of what you know was it what was wrong with me that I wasn't uh seen or heard or loved or held or felt you know enough so that a kind of developmental trauma that the Buddha must have also been feeling um and so I think the Buddha's whole enlightenment thing like that he's searching for that in his case maternal love you know that he was uh, uh, wanting from the outside, but he had to find eventually that it was in him already, you know, maybe from that first week of life or just because we all are inherently capable of that kind of love. But um, anyway, that's helped me a lot clinically with my patients and so on. What, what about ego? Ego, yeah. Yeah, just give us the just a brief on that crazy word because... It's yeah. good, it's bad, it's negative, yeah. it's positive. I mean, what, what, what are we talking you, about? Can we I just all, say that your book, it's advice not given a guide to getting over yourself? 
right? Yes. And that's yes. a lot about focus on the ego, isn't it? That 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 became focused on the ego once I got the subtitle of a, a guide to getting over yourself. <laughs> I had to try to explain what I was talking about. Well, um, I mean, sorry, and then I'll let you go, but that's what I feel like I have to fucking do personally, bringing it back to me and everything else is just get over your Get over your fucking self. It's, you're well, not that important. I mean, in that sense of the word. You know what I mean? It's like, do something it, for others. It's a delicate thing because you are that important. Right. You know, you individual, you specifically, Oliver, are that important. Thanks. You know, in fact. I'm going to start crying. No, I'm, holding yeah. it. I'm going to hold it in. I got to hold it in. <laughs> your ego, you're not just your ego, though. So, so where, how does the ego fit in? The, we, we all need our egos. The ego is a necessary adjustment in order to cope with being a person in the world. It, it starts to emerge around the age of three or four or five when the mind uh, realizes that, oh, I'm a separate person, you know, and I have to cope with going to sleep at night and being hungry and being alone, and my parents are expecting all this stuff from me, and I have to, like, uh, toilet training, like, really, I have to do this, and uh, eating the food, you know, that doesn't smell good, and then going to school and dealing with other kids who and making fun of me, you, you know. So uh, the ego is like a defensive organization that comes into being to help us. It's there to help us and we all need it. If you try to get rid of your ego too quickly, like with psychedelic drugs or uh, uh, too many retreats or whatever, you just get psychotic. And the definition of psychotic is not enough ego, you know. Or uh, people with ADD, they talk about a lack of executive function, you know, that the ability to organize yourself, to like do your homework or take out the garbage or pay the bills. That's all ego. So we all need the ego. Uh, but too much ego, you know, the ego is about uh, controlling uh, the environment, our, ourselves and as much as possible the outside world so that we can survive. Uh, but the ego kind of gets a hold of us. And uh, we think that's all there is to life. And we think that we should be able to control everything, even that which can't be controlled, you, you know? So the ego has to learn, once it's established enough, it has to learn also how to let go, you, you know? It has to learn when to be helpful, you know? Uh, but also when to let go. So but it's really we have to learn when to deploy the ego, you know, and when to allow other qualities that are inherent to our being to take priority. Mm. That's such an interesting thing because you would think like, you know, I, I, I sometimes struggle with that, meaning that you have like, especially I think being female, when things feel out of control, I... I have an instinct to take control, right? And then be seen as controlling. <laughs> you know, so like, when do you let something go? Mm -hmm. When do you actually sit back and mm -hmm. go, this isn't going to serve me or them? What is the balance? Yeah, what, How do you what find becomes... that balance? That's, that's where your own intelligence is really necessary. Uh, uh, and that's why the Eightfold Path, you, you know, is try, in a Buddhist way, tries to spell out, oh, yeah, we need all of these qualities in order to walk this balance. So absolutely, in that role, you have to be able to step in. 
Yeah. If you step in with too much ego or too much attachment to being right or getting everything under control, then you'll be experienced as too rigid or too controlling or too, you know, like too much like Scott Rudin you know, throwing things. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but um, uh, but if you if you come in, you, you know, just doing what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Like in, in Zen, it's all about, you know, washing the bowls and pick, weeding the weeds and so on. So if you come in and in psychotherapy, it's very similar. When do you do, when do you say something and when do you not? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you come in, you, you know, uh, with the right kind of balance, uh, with the right touch, um, then uh, you can get a lot done and people will still respect you, you, you yeah. know, and then you, and you can sense when, when to, when to let go. So it's that balance between uh, um, uh, applying your will, applying your agency and then uh, stepping back. And even in meditation that we have to do that, like you, you, you have to deploy your ego in order to meditate, you know, otherwise you'd just be sitting there, you, you know, but at a certain point, uh, once it's once you, uh, you're established in your meditation, then it's all about sitting back and just allowing the movie to unfold. I know, but it's so crazy. Like, who who the hell are we? You know, like are we, we don't our consciousness? Are we our conscious? What is our consciousness? Like, am I myself right now, or am I the voice that is constantly talking to me? you know, and explaining things or, you know, who, who, who the fuck are we really? I mean, it's, I, always, I know you, I always say before, before my therapy and before meditation, I didn't know who I was and it was, and I was a mess. And after it all, I still don't know who I am, but it's okay. Well, you're not a mess. <laughs> right, right. well you wrote it, you wrote about like not how to not be a prisoner of your ego. Like, what does that mean for you as a doctor? Like, how, how can someone out there not be a prisoner to their ego? Well, it, I think Oliver was getting at it a minute ago when you were saying, who, who am I? You know, am I these, uh, am I the voice in my head that's saying all of this stuff? Or am I the awareness of that voice in my mm-hmm. head that's saying all of that stuff? Or am I in, you know, am I somewhere else in my body while this is going on? Um, most people, I think, are really identified with that voice in their head, um, which is them to some degree. It's the them that they probably know the best and might also be quite ashamed of, uh, but it's not the totality of who they are. So the, the, uh, the big revelation coming out of meditation, and I think it can come from psychotherapy also, is that the, the witnessing... Uh, element, you know, the the awareness of like, you're thinking all those thoughts, but you're also aware that you're thinking all those thoughts and the awareness can't be the same as the thinker, you know, like that was my first book was thoughts without a thinker, you know, so the thoughts are going on, they happen by themselves. It, 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 in some way, that's really us, you you know, neurotic mess that we are. Uh, And yet at the same time, we can cultivate this other thing, which is the the uh, the witness consciousness, you know, or so you can think about it as coming from your head as like you're watching or listening or seeing, uh, but you could think of it also as coming from your heart as you the way a mother holds a baby 
you, you know, like you're creating a holding environment for your mind or for your feelings when they're difficult for your feelings, so that you're you're holding with that kind of loving awareness. Right. Um, and um, I think the the Buddhist thing has helped a lot by bringing in a bit of that loving awareness aspect to it, because otherwise it can get a little bit dissociative if it can get a little bit dry mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah because to simplify it too is, is difficult because it can get overwhelming you know just this idea of these sort of different personalities that you're that you're fighting every day how do we quiet that down what do we need to do to sort of at least let well, go right or get over ourselves or get over ourselves you exactly yeah. you know but it's 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 simple but not simplistic as our therapist says (laughs) i used to go the therapist that i used to go to i would uh, i would often start with what you know like part of me is upset uh, part of me feels this but part of me feels that Mm. which goes to your point of all that who are we and we're all these different and he would always say to me he would say you don't have parts mark You, you know uh, which always like sort of shook me, and I and I do that now to my patients. Whenever I notice the, the the language that we use to talk about our experience is very important, but the dividing yourself up into parts that's a dissociative thing. Mm. Like you, you know, so when he would say to me, you know, there's only one of you, that you, you know, oh, I'm all of this, you, you know, it, you know, it's I'm the thoughts and I'm the awareness and I'm you know. It's weird too. Because, I bet so many people do that because oh yeah. you, you want to disassociate from negative or positive. You know, you want to compartmentalize certain things. Well, it's also frustrating because it's like, I feel like I know my essence, but it's yeah. impossible to get to it. <laughs> that's but, but that's, that's a, another clip. <laughs> you know? That's a profound Buddhist teaching. Okay that they they talk about it's like a a a dog chasing its own tail oh that's all for sure oh yeah and you go i'm gonna cry thurman you uh so you go in a circle you know yeah i know my essence but i can't find it Mm -hmm. but i can feel it but i can almost and you you create like a whirlpool in your mind you you know uh that ultimately creates enough agitation and confusion that it, it burst. Flow. Yeah, you burst. That's <laughs> like me pressure cooker. Me right moment. now. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, this is it. Yeah. yeah. I that's so interesting. You know, I had this thing, you know, recently, like for me, it's also kind of when life becomes a lot of the same thing and it's the same kind of concept of it chasing, you know, but for me it's like not my own tail. It's like all these tails, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, it's like this one over here. And then there's this one there's, and I'm finally like, I want to quit. I want to Mm -hmm. sell my house. Mm -hmm. I want to move. I want to just break out of this, whatever this cycle is. Totally feel you. (laughs) I do. I, I get what that feeling is. And I, I sometimes wonder. I think it's a very, very common thing, especially at our age. But like, I, I would, I would also think that like we're responsible for our own trappings, right? Like we've created yeah. this experience. Yeah. yeah. And do you just listen to those things? Like, I'm like, should I should we, quit? I, like, should we act on this and actually just <laughs> bail? You know, sometimes you need an, an awakening, you know, um, 
Oh, and this is this is where I was going with that. You know, some people, and I wonder if you, I think about it sometimes with the Tara, like the white Tara, the red Tara, you know, uh, and and I'm very, I'm fire, right? And 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 I know that sometimes I have to balance whatever that is. But like everybody comes at these things in, in different ways. I'm like an explosion of fire, you know, and, and when you're working with patients, do you ever kind of see them energetically as, you know, an element or? Yeah. Oh, I see them energetically as mm. pure expressions of themselves. Absolutely. Which, which I think that's what those Tara, that's what all those things are, you know, white Tara, red, they're pure expressions of energy. And we're all, we all are pure expressions of something. So then what do you do when you're feeling like so much heat? (laughs) Is that your, (laughs) is that my ego? That's probably not your ego. That's probably your essence. Oh, uh, great. But you but uh, how you're relating <laughs> good or bad. <laughs> how you're relating to your to your heat is really important, you, you know. Um, cuz that the only thing we really have any uh, ultimate control over is how we relate to whatever is happening to us, mm. you know, either in us or to us. So, um, you could relate you could relate to it as like this is too scary. I have all of this heat or this, or, or, uh, I'm going to burn everything down, you, you know? Uh, but so, um, right. Find, finding that, uh, where, you know, where you're that balance between giving it full reign and holding it, uh, compassionately, you know, like that, that sort of becomes the work, I think. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a really interesting time and I don't want to forget this because, there's so much there's so much happening in the world people are so connected to negative stories and you know terrible things that have not only happening now but have been happening for forever but what i'm finding is this sort of it's like i it's like i want to shut it all off and i think there might be, maybe there's a lot of people who feel the same way it's like you feel like we need to be involved it's important to be involved in all of the issues that are going on in the world and at the same time mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming that you just want to turn it off and not listen to it and then yeah. and then you you want to speak out about your feelings about things or life or your how you feel about one particular situation or thing. I think people are finding it hard to know where they belong and how to actually use their voice and, and are feeling a little bit stifled if they're not these like super loud people, you know? And I wonder like if you were talking to someone, like I was feeling that way the other day, I was thinking, you know, I have so many things I want to say and I don't say, I have so much anxiety speaking up about anything that I feel strongly about. Are we living in a time where it's like, good, feel anxiety and don't talk? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you think there's a way to be able to kind of just balance that out? You know, like for me, like I, I can't quite, I feel like something's missing because I don't feel comfortable speaking outwardly about certain things, you know? I I think it, I think it is a time where speaking out is so fraught that uh, that everyone has to be very self-conscious, you, you know, because of the um, social media thing that uh, immediately 
uh, whatever you say is refracted and refracted and refracted in this way that shows how we're all connected, but maybe also how we're all um, entangling ourselves with, with each other, you know? So I think the way that all of the world's problems are at our um, immediate, uh, on our screens, at our feet, immediately available, like we, we're feeling everything uh, and feeling like we have to respond to everything. So that's too much for anybody. Well, in your, right. in your practice, I mean, have you noticed just over the years, they have more of a heightened anxiety overall, just generally speaking, you know, with uh, your... Um, not really. No, you haven't. <laughs> no, that's a there's good been thing. anxiety. There's, a, there's always anxiety. I think it's just like, how does the anxiety get expressed? Okay. And what, what is it expressed around? Right. Um, so I think this, you know, the, this whole pandemic time coupled with the uh, social awareness that's been going on uh, has really thrust people, be- you know, deep into themselves, like where a lot of self-examination, it's a really internal time. Uh, uh, at the same time that time is kind of going in circles instead of in a straight line, because mm-hmm. we're, mm-hmm. you know, um, so, uh, so I think there's a lot of confusion about where, where speech, uh, you know, what is right speech? Uh, you also said that people have a hard time in one of your books um, actually being with themselves. So, you know, then we're, you know, it's, it's like coupled with everything that's going on in the world, social media, but then actually being forced to be with themselves mm-hmm. like yeah i guess it would turn into a very reflective or destructive time for people it could be destructive that, that's one of the nice things about therapy i think is that it's an you know an intimate conversation that is protected you, you know so people mm-hmm. can work out uh they can work out their thoughts in a safe way instead of instead of working their thoughts out and you know on uh on instagram where they're going to be called out you know for uh those attempts so yeah Mm -hmm. you said um i was just looking at this quote um in resisting trauma and in defending ourselves from feeling its full impact we deprive ourselves of its truth Mm -hmm. um i love that but i'd love for you to expand on it a little bit because i think Mm -hmm. there's so many people everyone experiences trauma in some ways yeah well i've been i've been saying if we're if you don't suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome, that you suffer from pre-traumatic stress mm-hmm. because uh, <laughs> the, the underlying potential for trauma, uh, you know, old age, illness, death, separation from those we care about, loss, that, that potential is inherent in life. So, and we all know it, even though we're the ego defends against it by trying to control like we were talking about. But underneath that, we all know it and we're sort of scared and the pandemic has brought that on. So I, you know, that what, what you were quoting Kate came from, you know, seven or eight years ago when I was trying to figure out what, what is trauma. Uh, now we're all living it really, you, you know, this, um, so the idea that, that it's over, over there happening to other people, or it might happen to us sometime, actually it's happening right now. Everyone can feel it, but we don't want to feel it because it's scary and we would rather that the trauma was happening uh, somewhere else and then we could feel sorry for the people who were victims of it for a little bit and maybe send some money or some compassion or some love but then there's a sort of rush to normal where uh, we think we should be able to live without trauma you you know so um, 
that thing that you read, where that was coming from, my experience as a therapist, you know, helping, trying to help people who have had terrible losses, the, um, you know, where a child has been killed or parents die early or whatever, the, um, you know, the, the social pressure is really like, aren't you over it yet? It, you know, like go through the five stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross grief, you know, mm-hmm. denial, anger, acceptance, wet bargaining, whatever, mm-hmm. and then be done with it and get back to yourself. And th- that never seemed fair to me. It, it seems more like we have to come to terms with trauma as uh, an inevitable component of this life that we're all living. And uh, there's some kind of grief and love are connected. So if we're if we're uh, pushing the mourning or the grief or the sadness away, we're also pushing the love away, and then we're we're creating a much more constrained, uh, claustrophobic way of living. So I'm I'm trying to say that it's safe to feel the difficult stuff. And that in feeling the difficult stuff, we also can feel the, um, the good stuff. Mm. Yeah. If you were to give advice to people listening about how to deal with whatever life is throwing at them, if you had like, you know, wh- like what would be the first thing you would say to someone who's like, I have all this, like, I just have all this trauma or I have all this stuff happening. Like what would be the first tool you would give them? I, the first thing I would do would just be to say, like, tell me everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you know, How much time like, get, do we have? Get it, put it into words, you, yeah. you know? Like I'm I'm thinking when we're, now that we're talking, one, one of the patients who taught me the most about dealing with trauma came to me after the tsunami in 2004 or whenever it was, and she had lost her whole family, her, her parents and her husband and her children. Ugh. They were vacationing at an eco-resort. And the tsunami, the wave yeah. came and, and swept them all away. And she survived by clinging to a tree branch. But um, uh, everyone else died. And she ended up in my office. And um, uh, I really didn't know how I was going to help her. But uh, in, the, in the office... You know, I have two children and she had two children and and whether the children were alive or dead, uh, I know what it's like to have children. And so I just made her tell me about her children, Uh, you you know, and she hadn't been because they died and been so traumatic. You know, she'd been like having to keep them away. Mm. You you know, that's the tendency, uh, you you know, the dissociative Mm -hmm. tendency. And so the first thing I said then was, you know, like, tell me about them. And, and that, you know, that was so, so beautiful because uh, the love is all, they were still there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, oh so. Uh, I couldn't imagine. So again, you, you know. How do you, how do you go on from, I mean, how the, is that just the will to live? Is that just primal, something that takes over in your body chemically where it's like, you know, I'm, I got to move forward because that's so devastating. I, I, I don't think the moving forward isn't that it wasn't about moving forward. It was really about uh, being being in the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the love was still there. That was the key thing. The mm-hmm. feelings were still there. They they were still part of her. You, 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 know, you know, so in. Was she in, spiritual? I mean, was, was no, there a spiritual, no, spiritual not, component? Not no. before all this happened. <laughs> um, 
she wrote a book about it. That, yeah. uh, she wrote a beautiful book that's just, that's just called Wave, if anybody yeah. wants to. Yeah. Uh, the Times wow. picked it as the best book a few years and ago. And she found meditation? I mean, did she find No, her? meditation no. wasn't the biggest part of it. I mean, no. uh, if you expand your definition of meditation yes. to include the therapy yes. and, and then her own writing, I, I got her to to write stuff that she would bring to me and it turned into a, a, mm. a beautiful book, you know, but putting words on the feelings mm-hmm. that the tend, I mean, that's an extreme example of trauma, you know, yeah. like almost no one could, you know, imagine, but, but, but the way that one deals with any trauma, even COVID, you know, uh, is to do something of the same thing to like, try to close yourself off from the pain of it in order to keep going. Mm-hmm. So the, the keeping going isn't really the point. It's, it's like you're, you keep going with like a, you know, limping along. That, that's, I wanted her to be able to keep going with her whole vitality, you know. So that meant really look, dealing with what happened. Do you find that there are instances where people are using psychotherapy or meditation not in the best way and to sort of you know, actually hide from themselves in a way, you know, or they, they cross the line like of half of, the people you meet on yoga retreats. That's what I'm saying. Like where it's yeah, like, cause definitely. I've met some people where it's like, okay, it, it, on paper, it looks like you're doing great, but you're actually not really present. People use anything. <gasps> oh no. Oh God. I don't know if this is a sign. Oh no. A bird just flew into the glass window, and that's that's the end of it. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Okay, we, I gotta we gotta psychoanalyze this. It's a sign. It's a sign. Sometimes it's a sign. Um. Well. Okay. Where were we? Um, talking about trauma. We're yeah, about we're trauma. Talking about trauma. <laughs> we're talking about trauma, and the bird flies into the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life. Um, um, no, we were also we were also just discussing whether or not you know people can use it as a crutch. You yeah, know, meditation therapy. Yeah, that's where you were. Yeah. Yes, people will use anything. That's yeah. what that's what I was saying. They'll you know they use alcohol, they use drugs, they'll use yoga, they'll use therapy. The 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 ego wants to protect itself, and it, uh, there's a big uh, effort to hide from what we're ashamed of or what we're disturbed by or what's difficult to feel. So, you know, it's very understandable. But The book that you're writing, your new book, are you yeah. talking about this at all yet? Can you share with us a little bit what you're working on now? Uh, my, my new book, uh, I'm calling the, the Zen of Therapy, uh, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. And um, for a year, without knowing what I was writing about or what the next book was going to be, I tried to record one therapy session a week, not, not tape record, but write down afterwards one session where I thought the Buddhist influence was most obvious. Uh, Cause I was, I'm still trying to tease out like, what am I really, am I doing anything that's different from any other therapist and what's the Buddhist element and so on. So I thought, okay, let's, I'll just, you know, show my hand, you know? Uh, so for a year I did this and, but I could I had to force myself to do it. I don't usually take a lot of notes in my sessions. And then I didn't read it over for the whole year until it was done. And then I had this like pile of stuff, different patients, you know. And it was pretty interesting. 
and I showed it to my editor and she thought there might be something there, but that I should write a, like a reflection or a commentary uh, after each session to uh, highlight what it is I thought was happening. Uh, so I did all that during the past year. And I think it ended up showing that, yes, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the hour, mm-hmm. that there's some way that the therapy moves towards giving people a sense of of being rather than doing, you know, mm-hmm. that, they, that, that taps them into something deeper in themselves, hopefully, if I'm if I'm doing anything to part the ways of the ego. Uh, so I was trying to demonstrate that. That's so nice. Okay. Buddhist meditation, you've met some of the great philosophers, teachers, medita- meditators. You're, you're a Harvard medical graduate, right? So what do, what's your problem? You know what I mean? Like, what, what ha- Myself. Do, do, you have, do you have moments in your life where you're like, I can't get out of this fucking rut? I know all the tools because I literally am the tools, but... You want to come inside my mind? Yes, this is what I'm saying. Like, how, like, do you have the moments or where you're like a week and it's just like, I, 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 I just, God damn it, I don't know, I can't get out of my head. Uh, oh, what uh, do I have the moments? I have my life is about getting out of my head. <laughs> uh, what I like about being a therapist mm-hmm. is that, and I do talk about this in the book. What I, I think what I like so much about being a therapist is that when I'm being a therapist, I'm really not thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. And it's such a relief, you know. And I think the meditation has helped me with that. When I'm with somebody as their therapist, I mean, I've, I talk a lot as a therapist. I'm not like quiet and, you know, just listening and stuff, but I'm really not self-obsessed. You, you know, I'm really about like, oh, I want to, I, I want to get to that essential you, you know? Um, and that's so fun. That's like driving down the highway in the sob, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I can do it for seven, eight hours a day. So after that, I just want to watch TV or something. You do, you do, right? You just want I do. To I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> um, before we go, just to, just for those listening who maybe want to get into meditation, you know, do yeah. you have any do you have any sort of references of how to start? Because there's yeah. so many different ways to do it. There's so many different kinds of meditation. You know, mindful meditation, T, you know, TM. Like, what? Yeah. How does one get started without feeling overwhelmed? Um, well, I can I can tell people how to get started uh, with the people that I got started mm-hmm. with. You know, um, which which I'll be happy to do. But but um, I think it's important to know that one meditation isn't for everybody. Uh, some people really need just to be moving around and in their bodies mm-hmm. and working or working out or whatever. Um, and two, there's so many different kinds of meditation, so many ways in, and it really doesn't matter. It's whatever feels right to you. So I don't, you know, there's a lot of charlatans out there. So mm-hmm. you want to try to stay away from the ones who demand all your money, but, but there's, uh, there, there are many good ways in, but, um, this friend of mine, a newscaster named Dan Harris, you, you guys might know him mm-hmm. a little bit. He was a newscaster on ABC uh, until he had a, a panic attack when he came back from uh, Iraq. And then uh, his wife made him seek me out as a friend, not as a therapist. Uh, and I led him to uh, my Buddhist teachers and he got really into it. And he, he has a, uh, a podcast and an app called 10% Happier. 
and he he got my uh, he he got uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, a lot of the teachers that I respect the most, to come into the studio and record beginning meditation instruction. So uh, I think that's that's uh, an incredible uh, way in because uh, those Great. instructions are very uh, very 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 on point. Um, but that's just one one approach. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank All you. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for spending so the time. Wonderful. I appreciate it. And um, I think now more than ever, I mean, people are going to really resonate with this episode. And, and I'm so grateful that you joined us. So thank you so much. I'm going to go tend this to that is good. bird. Oh, I'm I've, so sorry about the bird. They, they say it's sometimes a sign from the other side, you know, when a, when a bird flies into your house. So. Oh, really? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah, I well, believe it. What if it crashes into the window? <laughs> I know, yeah. Well. <laughs> it's another kind of sign. It's a different sign. Yeah. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Producer is Allison Breslin. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark. If you want to show us some love, rate the show and leave us a review. This show is powered by Simplecast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.